You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. I'm really excited. This week we begin uh, the first series that we've had on the podcast, which I'm entitling Why We Love Scripture. And we're going to be looking at different parts of the Bible. So this week we are looking at the Psalms. I'm entitling this episode, Why We Love the Psalms. And I have a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Libby Backfish, about the Psalms. She's a Psalms scholar, so ideal for this kind of conversation. And we just have a really fun time, rich dialogue um, about the Psalms. What are the Psalms? Different kinds of Psalms how we make sense of um, lament psalms, which are really important, how we think about the psalms in worship and how they might be speaking to us today about aspects of worship that we might need to rethink as Christians, and then how we connect the psalms to Jesus, how the psalms point to Jesus, how Jesus takes up uh, the, the story of the psalms and even the voice of the lamenting uh, and enthroned king become the voice of Jesus the Messiah. Before we begin, one quick announcement. Uh, our next course for the Center for Bible Study is beginning in a couple weeks, uh, March 14th, and it will be four consecutive Tuesday nights. I'll be teaching a course on Ephesians entitled One People in Christ. So it's a great opportunity if you're looking to dive deeper into Scripture and you want to get a, a sense of you know, studying a letter in its historical context, but also really exploring the power of this letter of Paul for the church today. This would be an ideal place to do that. Uh, we have in-person options here on campus at William Jessup, as well as virtual options through Zoom and through uh, scheduled recordings. So um, it's going to be a rich conversation. want to invite you out to consider that. I'll post the link for registration below this recording. I'm also going to post a link to the uh, schedule for Psalms readings in the Book of Common Prayer. I mentioned this at the end of the recording, but the Book of Common Prayer actually has a schedule for morning and evening prayer that um, walk you through the entire Psalter, 150 Psalms in a month. And it's a journey that I'm currently going through and inviting others to go through. So I'll put that schedule there for you as well if you're interested in kind of an action step that you might take. Dr. Backfish mentions reading a psalm a day, which is awesome. If you have a little bit more time to devote to the psalms, shaping your morning and evening prayer around them is kind of my suggestion and following in the tradition of the Book of Common Prayer. So I'll post that link as well. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into our episode. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I am so, so excited today. I get to be with my colleague, Dr. Libby Backfish. Um, she's just such an awesome person. I was really excited to introduce um, her to the listeners, and she doesn't know this quite yet, but I'm working really hard on roping her into the Center of Bible Study oh, <laughs> to get her to teach classes for I would us. love to be involved. Rope me in. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I wanted to introduce kind of a little bit of her work as well. Um, this is her published dissertation on the Psalms. So I brought her in for a reason. She is a Psalms expert. Um, the title of her of her book is Wordplay and Septuagint Translation Technique in the Fourth Book of the Psalter. So what that means is she's not only thought about the Psalms in the Hebrew text, but she's also thought about how ancient Jewish translators were translating the Psalms uh, into Greek mm -hmm. and what that can teach us about interpretation and all of that kind of stuff. 
She's also ordained in the CRC. So she's deeply connected with the life of the church, which is central to the, the mission of this podcast is connecting the academy and the church together, connecting yes, biblical good. studies to the life of faith. And so she's really an ideal person to have here. And I'm really lucky that she's my colleague. Her office is right next door. So she didn't have to make a very far journey for the, for the podcast. I literally wheeled my chair in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for being here, Libby. Thanks for having me. I'm excited um, about the center. Yeah. And so would you be willing kind of just to give us a really quick, um, tour of your your journey of faith and kind of maybe what led you into biblical studies and interest in the Psalms? Sure. Um, journey of faith, I grew up as a Christian and always loved scripture. And when I, when I found out that I would be able to get paid for studying scripture know, right? and teaching other people how to read scripture well, um, it was God just confirmed it in my heart. And I've always loved teaching. So even if I weren't teaching the Bible, I would be teaching something. The fact that I get to teach the Bible in a university setting and in the church is just yeah. amazing. Um, and what drew me to the Old Testament is in part the foundational nature of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Mm. The more we know the Old Testament, the better we understand the new and appreciate Amen. Jesus. Yes, Amen. I know you're I know you're on my team there. And also just the literature is so beautiful, mm. which is part of what drew me to Psalms. We have this rich poetry that's so em emotive. It really mm. invites us to bring our whole honest selves to God and yeah. worship, and it shapes us in profound ways. And um, so, yeah, that's been my um, love with the Old Testament and in Psalms. And then the translation technique stuff is so interesting from a historical mm -hmm. vantage point that mm -hmm. you know the Septuagint was the first translation of Holy Scripture. And then also for modern times, like you just mentioned, we have translational, you know, issues with our English translations. And do we yeah. render the sense of the text or do we try to capture the style? Yeah. Um, and the Septuagint translators were wrestling with that, you know, hundreds of years ago. So, yeah, I love that. For those that want a little bit more in terms of what Dr. Backfish is talking about here, when you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, um, you actually find different translation techniques, mm -hmm. right? Ranging from some attempts to be very kind of very woodenly, like word for word or character for character reflection mm -hmm. um, in books like the Pentateuch. And then you find in places like in the Psalms, a kind of freer, more poetic places like in Isaiah also. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a different, you can see different translators have different ideas of how to move Holy Scripture from one language into another. Yeah, just like our English translations. I mean, our, our listeners and viewers, you, you can see the difference between an NIV translation yeah. and maybe a New American Standard translation. Right. Those are translation choices, and the right. same thing was happening with the Septuagint. Right, so cool, yeah. So to see that that has been going on for thousands of years yes. with Scripture is really, really neat. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, many of our listeners have read the Psalms before or read Psalms, maybe not all the way through, mm -hmm. but I think it'd be helpful uh, before we begin to talk about why we love the Psalms, just to kind of give an overview of of the book, because it's a obviously it's a collection and even a set sets of collections that came together over time. Mm. But how how do we make sense of the fact we've got 150 poems in our scriptures? What do we do with that? What does that look like? Yeah, well, I like the the idea that you 
that you called it a collection because some people think that the Psalms were just written by David. He just sat down during his lifetime right. and, and hammered them all out. Yeah. And, on his computer, right? Right. In, in his, uh, yeah. <laughs> and really, fewer than half are attributed to David, and we don't even know if those are written by David or before David yeah. or in honor of David. Right. So these Psalms come The heading from... is, by the way, Le David, right? So mm -hmm. that that introduces a variety of potential interpretations right. of what it what does le david mean it could mean for by right so that's what we're dedicated yeah, to dedicated all to. those all those options right. Right. Um, but we have some that are attributed to solomon and to moses right. and to different groups of people spanning hundreds of years and such different perspectives different circumstances in yeah. israel's history um, different types of psalms so there's all this diversity in yeah. the psalms but there's also an intentionality of that collection. It wasn't just haphazardly put together like a recipe book or something. Right. Um, we see an intentional shape to it that I think is intended to shape who we are mm. as worshipers. Um, so you enter the Psalms in Psalm 1, and right away it tells us what kind of worshiper we should be, what kind of um, person we should be. Uh, we should be the kind who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Uh, so it's kind of inviting us, hey, if you want to come into the Psalter, you need to be this kind of person. Yeah. You need to you know, be willing to be shaped into someone who loves God's will and, and his word. I love that. Yeah, yeah so the, the kind of the two ways path, right? Yes. Choosing the way of the Lord, his mm -hmm. Torah, his instruction, and that's kind of like leads us into thinking about worship. Yeah, very yeah. much wisdom vibes yeah. right there. Wisdom and... vibes. I like yeah. it. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, very good. That's awesome. Yeah. So we kind of lead in there. And then um, you see, do you see like with the transition from Psalm 1 to 2, then kind of like the king takes on that embodied. So it invites the king to be kind of that ideal worshiper, mm -hmm. even though we know in Israel's history that did not really happen very often. Right. Yeah. Um, but we think about like the law of the king in Deuteronomy mm -hmm. and the king is supposed to be this ideal guardian of Torah, of God's instruction and mm -hmm. kind of lead the people in yeah, that way. Absolutely. Deuteronomy 17, part of the job description of the king is to meditate the on the Torah yes, day and do night. what right. Psalm 1 is saying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of the king in the Psalms because we definitely see like this human ideal David king, yeah. especially in the beginning. Yeah. And then when we get to maybe Psalms 90 and yeah. following, we have this kind of crisis because the Davidic Kingship. The king's no more. Yeah, and, yeah. and Psalm 88 and 89 are lamenting there's no more Davidic dynasty. Yeah. What do we do? Yep. And then we have these, um, you know, Yahweh is king psalm saying, well, right. you've always had a divine king. Yeah. Um, so this kind of shift throughout the Psalter yes. from human king to divine king. And then yeah. David shows back up. In, in 132. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. I mean, we can see within the Psalms the wrestling with kingship, both the portrayal of we could call like an ideal kingship. Mm -hmm. which becomes, I mean, we could talk about whether David was an ideal king. I mean, he had, he had his moments, but mm -hmm. he also had some very dark moments. Um, but there's definitely, I think, this poetic reflection of what would the ideal king look like. And that becomes, like, really critical, I think, for how the New Testament authors are going to think about Jesus as mm -hmm. the as the, the divine king, the embodiment of God's kingship on earth. And then, um, yeah, so, but we, we do, we see, you mentioned the kind of that middle part of the psalm, the lament of the loss of kingship, mm -hmm. and the fact that the king receives the rejection of, the, like, the, the kind of, 
cosmic global rejection of God is put on the king and the king is shamed. Mm. And I think we see some of that in Jesus's act on the cross. Absolutely. Um, Donald Jewell, was a, he wrote a book called Messianic Exegesis and um, a really formative book. And he kind of hypothesized that Psalm 89 or 88 in the Septuagint was foundational for early Christian exegesis about, uh, mm. of, of Jesus because you have the king, uh, the anointed one who is shamed. And so those two kind of coming together. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's something to that. I mean, he, he went maybe a little further than I would go with making that like the foundation. But the two dynamics that are in play there are really interesting in light mm. of, you know, thinking about Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all leading up to that, because the earlier Psalms, too, focus on David or a psalmist as this innocent sufferer, yeah. which all culminates in yes. um, 89. So we've got this thread of innocent suffering yes. that Jesus fulfills, and then yeah. this thread of the king representing Israel and, and suffering because of their sin. Taking on, Taking on that. that sin. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think you have that ability then kind of through inner intertextual exegesis to think about how this king as the servant or, or slave of the Lord also connects then with this portrait of another servant in Isaiah mm -hmm. uh, who is kind of taking on the covenant curses of the people so that um, God's liberation can be you know brought through that right so I think you have an, uh, all these kind of connections from the Psalms to Isaiah as well and I think actually you have that within the Hebrew text as well some mm -hmm. inner biblical exegesis going on oh, there's so much yeah. inner biblical exegesis with Psalms yeah. and Luther called Psalms the little Bible yes because I mean yes. I, I'm glad we have the whole Old Testament yes. but if we just had the Psalms we would have a lot of theology yes. of the Old Testament right in there I love that I love that so that's a good transition. Let's talk about why we love the Psalms, because we love the Psalms, right? Mm -hmm. Both of us do, um, maybe for some similar reasons, maybe some different reasons. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you. Why do you love the Psalms so much? Yeah, well, one is that we have so many of these theological themes. Mm -hmm. So we have creation and mm. just beautifully portrayed Psalm 74, 104 is one of mm -hmm. my favorites where um, God created all things, but he sustains all things yeah. and the animals and um, we have Psalm 8 uh, describing the image of God yeah. and the dignity and the role and the care and love that God gives humanity. And the psalmist is just in awe of it. Yeah. You know, he's not just telling us about it like it's a systematic theology textbook. He's really in awe and captured by this. Um, you know, we have sin yeah. and repentance, sacrifice. Um, Psalm 51, yeah. David pouring out his heart after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And he's, um, and he's saying, you know, first I have to repent and then I can sacrifice to you. Yeah. It really gives us a, a theology of the place of sacrifice within their worship system. That's right. Yeah. And I think sometimes as Christians, we really struggle. I'm going to have a podcast, Why I Love Leviticus, and talk about oh, sacrifice good. that's coming up. But yeah. um, the, the idea of we sometimes look at these rituals that are described in the text and we assume kind of that, discussion we've had in the church ex opere operata that they kind of just self you know they operate out of themselves mm -hmm. and that these were kind of blind worshipers just doing acts mm -hmm. of ritual but what we see in the old testament is that sacrifices are gifts you're bringing to god mm -hmm. sometimes making reparation and restitution but you can't commune with the holy god if you're in a place of injustice or unholiness you got to make that right first yes. your heart has to be right, right yeah. to receive the sacrifice so when sacrifice is spiritualized for lack of a better term and that language is used it's a very natural connection because you're talking about the state that the worshiper should be in mm -hmm. when they're bringing a tangible gift to god's palace to mm -hmm. offer it to the king 
So yeah, I love that uh, that connection. That's really good. Yeah, and Psalms That's really, really you know, displays that so clearly and well. Yeah. Um, and then we have um, just so much other. We have you know salvation. We have um, covenant. We have the yeah. history of Israel. Yeah, Psalm seventy-eight. Yeah. yeah, these long. Yeah. I tell my students that's like the Cliff Notes version of of Israel's of the history. Story. There, yeah. Yeah, of the story. Yeah, <laughs> and then it, it makes sense too. Like if you look at places in the New Testament, just to make the connection. They're telling the story of Israel in various ways, but mm-hmm. but that that act of recapitulating that story is so central to Israel early Jewish identity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, can we come back to the theme of creation? Because I really I want to just park it there just for a moment. I always like to remind my students that a lot of the the Bible, the Old Testament's reflection on creation isn't in Genesis. Mm, right. Right. So there's a lot of creation theology mm-hmm. in particular in the Psalms and mm-hmm. in Isaiah. And while Genesis has is doing its thing, it kind of shaping creation in a certain way, a lot of the more direct engagement with the cultural environment of ancient Israel mm-hmm. comes in the Psalms in the way that the creation story is told mm-hmm. and also in the way that the creation story is du- directly linked with the Exodus, which is mm. God's creation of the covenant people. Yes. And they, they're drawing on um, like cosmic stories that are present in their environment, like mm-hmm. slaying of the dragons, splitting the waters, you know, yes. doing all that kind uh-huh. of stuff. So do you have any thoughts on the kind of creation theology of, yeah. of the Psalms? I, well, I think, yeah, we just can't stay in Genesis 1 and 2 because we get so much of a fuller picture elsewhere in Scripture. Right. Uh, you mentioned slaying the uh, Leviathan. Yeah. I think of Psalm 74 where yeah. it almost depicts God playing with him uh, yes, you, know. <laughs> you have the, yeah, he becomes a play toy right. rather than an adversary. Right, yeah. because God is so sovereign. He yeah. is so much more powerful than these other so-called creator deities that yeah. he can play with these yeah. so-called monsters of chaos, yeah. right? Yeah. So the Bible is taking these images and these other creation myths and really filling you know, taking that space and saying, no, this is Yahweh. He's the real creator God. And this is the kind of creator God he is. And he's created a good creation that you can learn from. So Psalm 19, he takes care of his creation. Psalm 104. Yeah. Um, I love that. The also, so the aspect of the sustaining of creation, I think is so important for us today. I'm thinking in particular of, um, all the recent discussion of revival. And Mm. the excitement that we have as believers to see um, like kind of a fresh manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I think for some people, though, it may be the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And part of that may even come down to the kind of post enlightenment split between the the mundane or secular and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of always looking for the supernatural. But the it seems to me that the theology of God sustaining creation and and that in the Psalms really invites us to see the mundane as supernatural right so really to recognize all of life as an act of being in a wondrous place the heavens declare the glory of god right right? so we are learning about god all around us and we as imagers of god have been placed in a position to care for all of creation and yeah and to consider that a part of our you know vocation Yeah. yeah yeah so when we think about maybe how the creation theology of the Psalms is shaping us, it's inviting us to recognize all aspects of our life as worship, um, to see the mundane as actually wondrous Mm. and not maybe bifurcate or split Mm. um, certain things from all of life, right? Yes, Um, we do. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. 
Yeah, so I, I love that. Let me throw one out to you then. So we've got the theology of the Psalms. One of the reasons I really love the Psalms, you kind of already alluded to this, is the um, the aspect that they allow us to bring our emotion to mm. to, to God. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is something that I think goes back to Athanasius, probably before even before him, but the church father Athanasius wrote a letter to a younger disciple about how the Psalms reflect the full range of mm. emotions that we mm-hmm. have as human beings. Um, and one of the things that I've really been struck by with the Psalms is the lament mm. and the fact that lament is actually the primary type of Psalm or it's the most used type that we mm-hmm. have in the Psalms, which I think tells us a lot about life. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember being back, uh, back at Jessup, my, my final year, 2008, 2009, my mom uh, got diagnosed with cancer. Um, and then ended up dying that year, uh, my final year here at Jessup, uh, when I was a student. And I was kind of still early on in my formational process of understanding scripture. But one of the things that I had picked up from the wider kind of American evangelical complex is this idea that strong faith is always kind of a triumphalist faith. Mm. And um, uh, the way you show your devotion for God is is you're always kind of happy and oh, you know that right. that whole deal yes, that we, uh-huh. that I think gets communicated a thousand different ways to us mm-hmm. in church. I've been interested in in um, kind of following how lament is even handled in evangelical churches. I attended one really big mega church one time at a conference just to see it, mm-hmm. and they actually happened to be talking about lament, which shocked me. Mm-hmm. But what was so kind of jarring is that the worship was so kind of loud and brash and mm. triumphalist it didn't match the, the 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 tenor of the sermon in any way mm. and then also the pastor kind of went there with the lament but got mm-hmm. it's almost like we go there but we can't really linger there right. we got to instantly run to, to god the, is great i'm strong rejoicing. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. all my problems are gone <laughs> you yeah. know kind of announcement and um and so i just i i, I think about that how our worship could be like our worship, I think, is impoverished in many ways when we don't linger in lament. And I, so I just love to hear kind of your thoughts about the lament psalms, because it's one of the reasons where I really appreciate uh, the Psalter so much. Um, yeah. Now kind of looking back on that, um, and not only for myself, but I see Jesus as the model of lament. Mm-hmm. So when I Absolutely. lament, I'm lamenting with Jesus, whose yes. final words on the cross were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening of Psalm 22, which right. is, that's a lament. I yeah. Mean. So, um, so yeah, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about. Yeah. Well, let me start with Psalm 22 then, since you mentioned that, because I think one of the things that lament invites us to do is not just to bring our full and honest emotions to God, but I think it even invites us to bring our incorrect feelings to God. Oh, yeah. That's because good. Jesus was not forsaken. The psalmist was not forsaken. Mm-hmm really and the psalmist knows that later in the psalm but that is how they felt yeah and so it invites us to say god where are you you are not around you're absent and yet we know god is there right we're allowed to express how we feel even if we know it's not correct so psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me so far from my cries of anguish the psalmist knows that god's not really far because if we go down to verse 24 For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but Mm. he has listened to his cry for help. Yeah. Um, So that simultaneous, you know, we're able to express how we feel even when we know in reality it's theologically incorrect. That's good. I think that's beautiful. 
Um, one psalm that I've been reflecting on a lot, it's a lament. It's Psalm 13. Yeah, I love that psalm. It, it's That's a parade example of a lament. I yeah. use it in class to show it has these various components that are classic for laments. Yeah. So if you don't mind, it's only six verses. Yeah, let's do it. I I'll love read it. it. I love um, it. And it's short enough that I think even if you're just listening, you'll be able to yeah. follow along. Yeah. So it starts off with a complaint, and then it's going to move to a request, to mm. a petition, to the prayer part, and then it ends in this statement of trust. So mm. listen for those parts. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Mm. So that's the psalmist's complaint. And notice that the psalmist is complaining against three different individuals there. God, mm -hmm. God's not around mm -hmm. um, himself. He's wrestling with his own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then there's the enemies. Mm -hmm. So sometimes laments will only speak about one of those but here it's you got all three <laughs> you got all three yeah the i um mm. thou and they and then verse three here starts the petition look on me and answer lord my god give light to my eyes or i will sleep in death and my enemy will say i have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when i fall and then here comes mm. the statement of trust but i trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation i will sing the lord's praise for he has been good to me now, I think some people misunderstand the relationship between the trust and the lament. Mm. And they think that something either needs to change before we make this statement of trust. Mm -hmm. And so scholars will propose all sorts of changes to the text. Right. They'll, they'll say, oh, this trust isn't a current statement of trust. It really like is a future. a future vow. I right. will do like this. Like they're almost like in the future speaking about it. Like yes. after they brought their Thanksgiving or Once something. Once you answer my prayer, God, mm. then I'm going to trust you mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. And then some people propose um, that maybe in the temple, a prophet or a priest would have given a divine oracle mm. of God assuring salvation. And then the psalmist responds with a statement of trust, even though there's no evidence for that <laughs> right, at all. Right. And I think people are just uncomfortable with the idea that we can have both lament and trust at the same time held in Ooh, tension. Like and that. we don't always have to move so quickly from lament to the trust. Yeah. Like that mega church pastor is yeah. like, okay, here's some lament, but praise. Right, right. Or, you know, it's been, you yeah. know, I've, I've heard it recently where people say, yes, lament, but then we want you to move to the praise. Right, yeah. I mean, we're we, very uncomfortable with lingering and lament. Right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, and we can do both at the same yeah. time. And I think yeah. when really hard things happen, like you experienced, we shouldn't be pushed away from that lament too yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, we should live in that tension and let God yep. heal us in that tension. Yeah. You know, one thing, a couple of thoughts, one thing that struck me when you were talking about the two things happening at the same time, a great example of this in a text is Psalm 119, mm, which yes. I just struck me freshly. I mean, you always think, oh, this is a wisdom psalm, massive acrostic of loving the law and everything. But you go, it's like a back and forth between almost like this reflective, meditative trust and confidence in God's Torah to, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I'm surrounded. Why, where are you, God? And this is, you know, and you're kind of like, whoa, this is all over the, this, this guy's all over the place. Yeah. But you kind of realize like, actually, this is like real life. It, it is, is. I was going to say, don't most of us yeah. usually feel these feelings yeah. all at once? Yeah. 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 So that, that's really, really good. What do you think? I don't want to overly psychologize us all, but, um, <laughs> Our, our inability or or our fear apprehension about lingering and lament do you think it's it says something maybe about our what we believe about God like we need to get God off the hook or mm. like because our ideas of God are such that 
we're uncomfortable with a God that we can't explain why God would do certain things or allow certain things to happen. Um, it just seems to me that we, we really have some felt need that we've all or many of us have maybe been conditioned to have in church mm -hmm. to rush through the lament because it makes us, it leaves us in a space where we have lots of questions and no answers. Mm. And it makes us feel like maybe the gospel is ineffectual yeah. if we linger in lament. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, a, that's not good theology either, right? Because right? we're right. told that things are going to be messy and right. we're going to suffer amidst the joy and rejoicing. Yes. You know, this, this side of Christ's return. So, yeah, um, yeah I think that's... That's an unfortunate yeah. theme in current theology, for sure. And it, I think it also, one other thought I had is maybe it kind of affects our ability, depending on the spaces, the faith communities we inhabit, it really affects the ability of ourselves, our community, to be good uh, embodiments of the gospel to other communities who are marginalized or really struggling. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. people who, like, they read the lament psalms and they're like this is my daily reality mm -hmm. you know if you're a part of a community that doesn't have space for a lament well what are you going to do with somebody whose daily reality is a lament psalm or a community whose story in many ways for a long time is a lament psalm mm -hmm. um it's going to make it really hard for for us to have space for other people right and the bible's made space for those people yeah. in these psalms yeah and um, not only have they made space for the lament, but if we look at these, like the one I just read, we don't know who these enemies are. Mm -hmm. We don't know why the psalmist is wrestling. We don't know the nature of this depression. Yeah. or the. It's so generalized yeah. so as to invite anyone into this space. Yeah. This is your space. This has been the space of worshipers for hundreds of years all over yeah. the world. Yeah. It's really inclusive in it. Um, and it recognizes that those feelings are real. They're a part of the Christian and Jewish experience. Yeah, love it. I love it. We think about like the the general nature of the psalm that they uh, the psalms that they invite people from different locations kind of into the story. Mm -hmm. We also hear in those stories we hear the praying voice, the I. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we also see the communal aspect. And one thing that I think is, is really interesting, uh, it's kind of a hobby horse of mine in our current worship climate, mm -hmm. is a lot of modern worship songs really reflect kind of American or Western individualism. Yes. And they often become just a, a, um, a place where the, the isolated individual I sort of narrates back to God how I am feeling mm -hmm. right now, which is okay, mm -hmm. but we wonder, is that the extent of worship? And have we kind of separated ourselves individually from like how God is trying to shape us mm -hmm. as a community? So it'd be interesting to see how you think the Psalms might speak to that. Yeah, because we do see individual Psalms. So we have individual laments where it is very much I, but even those individual Psalms are always tied in with the larger community. Yeah. So I was just reflecting on Psalm 3 recently, and it's very much I, uh, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. But then when it concludes, the psalmist says, from the Lord comes deliverance, may your blessing be on your people. Yeah. It's still always tied to the people of God. Yes. And another way we can think communally about the Psalms is 
um, we pray these psalms not just for ourselves and our own situations, but for other people as well. Right. I think sometimes we think, yeah, oh, well, this psalm good. doesn't apply in my situation. I'm not suffering right now. Right. But you know what? A lot of people are. Right. You know, or I'm not feeling um, any injustice against me currently. But a lot of people are. We yes. can pray these on their behalf. Yes. And that opens up our heart and our empathy to be, you know, the body of Christ that we're supposed to be. I love that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really good. What do you think are, I mean, if you're willing to go here with me for a moment, what what happens to a worshiping community or what are the dangers when we may reduce worship to singing and then reduce that to singing about how we as individuals feel about God? <laughs> we, we just lose so much. We lose our connection with other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's highlighted even in certain aesthetics of our worship. If we're only seeing the worship leader because everything else is so dark, yeah. we're not seeing the people around us who we're worshiping alongside, right? right? Um, it's and, almost as if the, the ambiance is trying to create an environment where you feel like you're alone mm-hmm. and there's no one else it's there. It's just you and Jesus. You and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard worship leaders of large congregations mm-hmm. say that their goal when they're leading worship mm-hmm. is to pretend that they're alone with God. Mm. And there's a place for that, to have yeah. private worship time with God and devotions. But there's arguably a more important place in the worship of God's people communally together. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I mean, I like to remind people, like, when we're brought into the new creation and glorified, it's all of us together, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't like the people standing next to you or sitting next to you in the dark, they're going to be there too. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So get to like them. And yes. Get, get, get used to <laughs> blending your voices with theirs because that's what it's going to be like. So, mm-hmm. yeah, th- I think that's that's really important. And um, that's honestly something that may be worthy at some point of a, of a series of onto itself is mm-hmm. yeah. the... Um, the importance of like kind of communal life in the in the Bible mm-hmm. and yeah I mean you could say on one hand we live in a very different cultural world than they did 100% mm-hmm. but we really do I think need a much stronger uh, critique and reformation of our worship practices and how we've been kind of liturgized to see life mm-hmm. in the, the uh, in the American church I think yeah, I think the Psalms do a beautiful job of reminding uh, us. It's they. I think they. This is like the primary kind of training place ground. we need to go back to. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have anything else for us? What, what's another reason why you love the Psalms? Oh, um, let's see. Well, we've been talking about how laments shape us, but let's talk a little bit about how the other types of psalms shape us too. Yeah. So one thing that um, I've been really impacted by is Walter Brueggemann's Theology of the Psalms. So he has the idea that psalms can be more or less categorized as psalms of orientation, Mm -hmm. like how things typically go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like Psalm 1, you know, if you meditate on Torah, you're going to go down this path of wisdom. If not, uh uh-uh. Right. Um, and then Psalms of disorientation, which would be those lament, lament. Psalms. Yeah. yeah, what happens when things aren't going the way uh, we would expect them to. And then on the other side of that, Psalms of reorientation, mm. where you've been through this period of disorientation and God has been faithful and your, str- and your faith is strengthened. Love you know, it. you come out the other side in this really stronger way. Yeah. Uh, so we see all sorts of s- Psalms like that throughout the Psalter, but sometimes we even see them in order. 
So ah, yeah, yeah, good. which is pretty fun. So Psalm 21 is a royal psalm, and it's talking about the king and God blessing the king. Yeah. Everything is exactly as you would expect it to be. Yeah. It's a psalm of orientation. Yeah. Psalm 22. Disorientation. Disorientation. And then Psalm 23, oh, which your right. listeners are probably familiar with, it's the psalm of confidence yeah. in God as a shepherd, yeah. God as a host, laying a table before the enemies. But it's not just naive confidence. Like, yes, we learned in Sunday school, God is always good. Mm -hmm. Our faith has never been shaken because we have this beautiful line. Uh, verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Yeah. This psalmist has been through that darkest valley and has come out the other side with strength and faith. Oh, I love that. So I think that's helpful when we're reading the Psalms, but it's also helpful because the Psalms are to shape us, yeah. you know, and we are intended on our spiritual journeys to go through these periods mm. of disorientation and hopefully come out the other side yeah. with a reorientation and a deeper faith. I love that. That's really cool. Thanks for taking us through that. And that also illustrates the point that you'd made earlier about the canonical shape of the Psalms mm -hmm. and there being intentionality to how Psalms yes. are put together. And yeah. I love that. Funny story about Psalm 23. <laughs> also, when I was a kid, I could I, I heard the the King James Version, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I always want to know, why am I supposed to not want God? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just a reminder, language changes yes. over time and how we think we mean things. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. Um, yeah. And so, so we've kind of covered, I think, a lot. There's different kind of Psalms. Maybe we could, we've, we've also alluded to this a little bit, but um, maybe dive just a little bit deeper into this as maybe kind of final topic or penultimate. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about the Psalms is they help me see Jesus. Mm. Like I, I feel like with the, you just talk about the Psalms as kind of a mini Bible and then Isaiah as a kind of proto gospel mm -hmm. in some ways, those yep. two together um, really helped me see Jesus like in, in a clear way and the full range of how Jesus kind of participates in our humanity. So what it means for him to, to take on our humanity and, um, and continue as the ideal human being for us even now. So you think about like portraits of the King we have going on in the Psalms from like the way that early Christians are reading the Psalms is there develops a tradition in the second temple period, late second temple period, as these Psalms are being translated, you have, you know, the exegetical practices of coordinating these Psalms with life, with, with moments in the life of David. So that's mm -hmm. kind of an interesting interpretive practice where these are being linked together. Mm -hmm. But you, you also have people reading Psalm texts as prophetic Mm -hmm. So they're both reflective, but they're also David is a spirit inspired prophet, as we see mm -hmm. in some, um, you know, some places where he, he speaks by the spirit of the Lord. And mm -hmm. and so um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they describe David as a spirit inspired prophet. And that's what you see also in the New Testament. What becomes interesting is the identification of Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. You've got David as this prophet speaking about the Messiah kind of prophetically. And then he he speaks in the voice of the Messiah. So it's like the mm. voice of David mm -hmm. becomes the voice of Jesus yes. in the New Testament, this new David, and which yeah. is really, really kind of cool. So Jesus, you can identify then Jesus's voice as the, the praying one mm -hmm. in the Psalms. And then when I think about what it means to be a Christian and to pray, it's praying with Jesus, praying through the mm. same words that Jesus prayed or mm -hmm. that Jesus articulated 
which is the full range of, you know, um, orientation, disorientation, mm-hmm. reorientation. Yes. And what I love to point out to people about Psalm 22, since we've been talking about that, is when you look at the, the cross, you've got Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So kind of this deep, yeah, it's a cry of disorientation, still identifying God as Eli, my God, mm-hmm. even in that moment. Um, and that the, the, the Gospels, I mean, I think the synoptic tradition and maybe even Mark in particular doesn't back away from that, which is really interesting. If you mm. look at that cultural environment, that's not the way a royal figure is supposed to die or an mm. exemplary figure crying out like that. Right. right? And so you've got that, that aspect with the cross. But then if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is the one at the end of Psalm 22 confessing God in the mm. congregation. So now you have the resurrected Christ who's yeah. come through mm-hmm. that disorientation of the cross, been vindicated in the resurrection. And now Jesus is the ideal human uh, resurrected, announcing God's goodness to his brothers and sisters and confessing us before God, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So Jesus mm-hmm. is the one who knows us, who's who's um, experienced the full range of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And then he stands before the father interceding on our behalf yes. as one who shares our flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got like the full range within the life of Jesus in this, in Psalm 22. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Um, so yeah, that, that for me, that really helps me, you know, kind of think about when I'm praying these words, I'm not just praying them, um, uh, praying ancient, I'm praying ancient words that other brothers and sisters of the faith have prayed, ancient Israelites, um, early Jews, Christians. Um, but as, as a Christian, I'm also praying them through my connection to the Messiah. And that becomes really yeah. kind of cool for me. That is so cool. And I, I think so often we, we ask the wrong question of which Psalms are messianic and which ones yeah, aren't messianic. For sure. And some certainly are more messianic than others. But I think it's more helpful to look at the entire Psalter as being messianic yeah. in some way. Yeah. Uh, and you just described that fullness really well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You can and, and we can always, you know, there's certain places in the Psalms where it's like, wow, this is really hard to connect directly to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the um, that's part of that's always been kind of the issue within Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. Does every word have to be Jesus or mm-hmm. can they? reflect Jesus in different ways or point to the wider story that right. Jesus, you know, uh-huh. yep. and, and I think we have to have some flexibility there sure. right? as, yeah. as readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's good. Well, any, um, any last thoughts that you want to kind of like leave people with, with the Psalms? Well, I think mm-hmm. we should leave with Jesus. I think that's a good ending point. Fair enough. We are <laughs> Christians after all. We shouldn't be ashamed that we, that, that leads us to Jesus. Well, Um, thanks so much for the conversation. Um, thank you. This is great for me. This is just like wonderful. Uh, I I love it. And I know that our listeners will really appreciate it as well. I want to encourage people to dive into the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Um, there's many ways you can do it. I don't know if you have any thoughts. One uh, suggestion that I've been making to some people is, um, the book of common prayer. I've got one, my copy here has a, an order for morning and evening prayer which is a really wonderful idea. Mm -hmm. Like Cramner knew what he was doing when he organized this whole thing, right? Like we're going to know the Psalms. They're going to be part of our prayer life. So the idea is you read through um, the entire 150 Psalms in a month through morning and evening prayer. So that's one really cool way to kind of orient your life with the Psalms. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on kind of 
practices or, or ways that people can kind of get into incorporating the Psalms? Into yeah, definitely daily Bible reading and whatever that might look like in your schedule. And it might not be in a, you know, in one month to yeah. go through all of them, but yeah, even it's pretty ambitious sometimes one depending Psalm on a, yeah, a day. A Psalm a day. Is, yeah. Psalm a day keeps thing. the devil away. No, just, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah. So, so really just want to encourage you to think about the Psalms um, both kind of, yeah, like what we're trying to do here on an academic level, but also to see these are worship texts mm -hmm. and they are, as you said, designed to shape our, our worship right. and allow that process to happen. Read the text, see what the spirit does through that, that process. And, um, yeah. I want to encourage you. So thanks everyone for tuning in and thanks again, Dr. Backler. This was really a treat. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks.